City Road Podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people. Hello everyone, Dallas Rogers here and welcome back to the City Road Podcast and Festival of Urbanism Book Club series for 2023. Today, Adam David Morton, Professor of Political Economy in the Discipline of Political Economy at the University of Sydney, is talking with Mark Stephen about his new book, Class War, A Literary History. It's a fascinating discussion and I'll hand over to Adam. So it's with great pleasure that I'm here today with uh, Dallas Rogers, who is the editor of City Road Podcasts, and of course, Mark Stephen, to discuss his new book, Class War, A Literary History. So it's great to see you, Mark, again, and we welcome you back to Sydney sometime soon. Just for future new readers, Mark, I wanted uh, you to tell us a little bit about uh, your amazing book, Class War, A Literary History, and it's a sweep through the making of collective solidarity in terms of revolution or the process of class war and how the novel form can carry narratives of revolution or the literary space of class war. And we'll get into some questions on this in a moment. What I really like about your book is the way it takes us from the plantations of Haiti through the streets of the Paris Commune to the dark satanic mills of industrialising Manchester, to Red Petrograd. Your book also moves, for those that are new to it, from the Chingang Mountains with Mao through Pan-African decolonial war to the Sierra Maestra uh, and the mountains in Cuba. The final main chapter is a nuanced reading of how class struggle is never not, uh, is never not racial, drawing from black radicals such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore to then assess the Black Panther movement and today's Black Lives Matter. In terms then of the space of literature, we meet, among many others, Emile Zola, William Morris, Victor Serge, Chen Yi, Ngugi Wationgo, Elena Ferranti and Asata Shakur. My first question then, after that loosening up, is about class war as a process of becoming, as well as class war as a narrative concept, which you weave throughout your book in looking at the space of literature. So in terms of a question then, towards the end of your book, you state that the revolutionary process of class war is, and I quote, carried by literary form in the substance of its diction and the shape of its grammar, out of the revolutionary past and into the historical present, a moment defined by the death of liberal progress and the proliferation of new crises and new antagonisms, end quote. So can you expand that central red thread a little bit more for new readers of your book on class war as process and class war as a narrative concept, please? Hey, yes, absolutely. And thank you for having me to come come and talk with you. Um, so when we think about class war, we probably think about this ubiquitous phrase, class war or class warfare, that seems to appear all throughout history and especially so since the early 19th century. And it is at peak ubiquity at the moment. We encounter it all over the popular press in many different shapes and guises. 
But what, what are we talking about when we talk about class war? The way that I tend to describe it is that it is a metaphor that wants to become literal. So the invocation of class war tends to mean two things simultaneously. One, when we say that there is a class war going on, it's a metaphor. It's describing the way that class struggle plays out, the way that those who have the stuff have dispossessed those who no longer have, have the stuff, and that the struggle between these two factions, these two classes, is in essence warlike. There is material struggle there. There is a body count there. There are moments of heated, explosive combat between the two. Not often, though. So when we think about class war, we think about the metaphor, but simultaneously, to invoke class warfare is to use it as a speech act. Class war is catalytic. It is meant to inspire comrades to revolt, to recognize that the struggle in which we are all irreducibly taking part, it wants to be something more. It wants to be something revolutionary. It wants to be a revolt to end the hierarchy of classes once and for all. So class war is a metaphor that wants to be literal. Now, this is the language of revolution in that revolutionaries have been using the language, using this formulation of class war for several centuries now. But it is also, you can tell because I'm using what's like metaphor, it is also a highly literary form. So class war is in the language of revolution, but it's also the language of literature. Now, my book, Class War, is a literary history. What that means is that I've tried to trace the thinking and the actions of class war from their origins sometime around the, the, the late 18th century between the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution through to the present. So it means tracing a long arc of revolutionaries and writers in an intergenerational and international narrative that, that sweeps all across the globe. Now, when I say it's a book about revolutionaries and writers, um, these two are, with some frequency, the same person. Revolutionaries tend to read and write, and writers have, through history, quite frequently been revolutionaries. I think about the crossovers between these two things, and I think about the way that this idea of class war is, in fact, that red thread that links them all across time and space, so that we have a revolutionary or a writer at one point in history picking up something that one of their forebears did at a different time in a different place. So that's how I would answer that first question. Thanks very much, Mark. And uh, it takes me, um, in a sense, back to Marx on literature as well, and the way in which in the way in which Marx engages with literature, not only through metaphor and class war, but analogy as well. So I think when you blend that focus on the literary and the metaphor and analogy, it really kind of connects right right back to Marx on literature as well. Um, my second question then is about unpacking the relationship between the novel and revolution. At, at one stage in the book, you have this great um, engagement with Terry Eagleton, uh, and his uh, one of his books, the English novel, published in two thousand and fourteen. Hence, with Eagleton, you state that the novel is a mode of storytelling, wherein, and to quote your words, art finally returns the world to the common people who had created it through their labour 
and who could now contemplate their own faces for the first time. So could you tell us a bit more about how you conceive of the relationship between the novel and revolution, please? Absolutely. So citing Terry Eagleton there, he's talking about not just the novel in general, but the novel at a very specific time and place. He's talking about the English realist novel in the the 19th century. And so we have to think about the novel within its context here. So this is a time of both heightened literacy, but also wider circulation of mass print, of print media, not just the, the, the narrative content of the novels that responded to that context by, and, and, and this is Eagleton's formulation, um, by presenting working people who had access to this genre for, for, for the first time in many ways, presenting them with images of themselves. And that's what we get in the realist fictions of writers like Charles Dickens, Elizabeth Gaskell, uh, the, the, the Brontes, even um, Tory politician uh, Benjamin Disraeli. I, I talk about one of his books in, in, in mine. Now, what I want to suggest here, though, is that it's not just about presenting working people in Novels by those four novelists in, in, in particular, we encounter various forms of what I've been calling class war, um, as, as is historically peculiar to England during the 19th century. We think about those very specific modes of revolt. We think about the Luddite rebellion at the start of that century. Then we think about the great efflorescence of the, the, the Chartist movement. Now, where these novels present working people and the dispossessed and where they present them in moments of warlike revolt. What I find especially interesting is that it's not just context or narrative content. It's also, once again, about literary form, that these novels are all shot through with a very specifically English, I find, brand of romanticism. There is a romantic longing in all of these, in, in novels by all of the, these writers, the kind of longing that you also find in the, the poetry of John Keats, William Blake, and even sometimes Lord Byron, that is a profound and anguished response to the onset of enclosure, to the onset of industrial modernity, the longing for a world that could have been or could be otherwise. So we have the English realist novel is a genre about working people, but it's also a genre that seems beholden to the utopian political energies of the day. Now, what I'm trying to suggest here via the the, the English novel is something that we see happening in many times and many places. That is that revolutionary process and literary form are mutually, if unevenly, responsive to one another. If the English realist novel seemed to absorb the romanticism that also found its way into the Luddite and the Chartist movements. We see different versions of that. So you mentioned in your introduction that I write about Mao in China. Mao's militant poetry, it's written in forms of classical Chinese verse, but by the same token, it uses metaphors and it uses dictions or vocabulary that is one that would be particular to the specific kind of revolutionary movement he was a part of in that it's full of metaphors that would appeal to the peasant population of China at the time. There are descriptions of brush fire. There are descriptions of um, 
of, of hurricanes. Similarly, looking forward through 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 time and into other chapters in the book, you sense in the Italian militant autonomous movement from the 1970s, the literature that they were producing had the feel of a revolutionary dispatch. You read one of their novels and it feels kind of like a ransom note, which is, again, beholden to the political tactics they were taking up. Or jumping close to the, the, the present, we think about Black radical writing in the United States. This so often takes the form of autobiographical and specifically autobiographical carceral or prison narratives. So a literary form that is not just about the persons that belong to a, a specific class, but which also seems to respond in form, not just what is told, but the way that it is told to the particular kinds of revolutionary organization, composition or movement at hand. Thanks, Mark. And um, just in terms of that question as well, and for our general listeners that, and your potential readers, I really like how in terms of the register of classic sort of social theorists, you include a focus on exploding the nuclear family with the help of those uh, autonomist feminists such as Maria Rosa della Costa and Silvia Federici. It's a really brilliant uh, focus in the book. I mean, my third question turns to issues of allegory and your intellectual shadow boxing, if I can call it that, with Frederick Jameson. I think one of the most insightful turns in the book Class War is your argument that the narrative mode taken by war against the colonial system is an allegorical one. So for you then, decolonial warfare is allegorical. Can you explain for us a little bit more this allegorical relationship between class and the colony, especially as it pertains to revolution and the space of literature? Okay, I'll do my best with this one. So the relationship between class and colony, between social class and the the, the imperial outcroppings, the colonized state or, or nation, um, it is dialectical insofar as we need to grasp it as a determination that flows in two separate directions. And I'll try and explain them both separately before I speak to allegory. Um, the relationship between class and colony needs to be grasped in the first instance as something that is world systemic, that is beholden to what world systems theorists might call a, a core periphery model um, or, or a model of, of dependence or imperial exploitation. What this means is that a colonial relationship is one in which an imperial core state exploits not just a class, but a nation as a whole. Now, this is the kind of thinking that, for me at least, finds its most profound and powerful articulation in the work of Walter Rodney, and specifically in his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. The thesis of that book is that in the historical relationship, which is a colonial relationship between Europe and Africa, you have an active underdevelopment taking place. Africa, the peripheral state, is underdeveloped and primed for resource extraction to be sent back to that, that, that core state. And what this means is that locally, on the ground, in Africa, you have 
class relations developing, but differently to how they would in, say, the early industrializing core states. Now, if that is one way the relationship between class and colony plays out, the other is the inverse of that, in that lessons from the colonial periphery tend to be brought back to the core, and more specifically, lessons taken from those who have brutally managed the colonized subjects are taken back to the to the imperial core and often applied to dispossessed working people. Now, readers of uh, uh, the, the, the great novelist Thomas Pynchon will know about the, the historical coincidence of the murder of Rosa Luxemburg, that she leader of a revolutionary movement in Germany, one of the most advanced core nations, she was murdered at the hands of soldiers who had come back from a genocidal colonizing mission in Africa. This is a dynamic that we see play out time and time again through history in such a way that we can start thinking about those peripheral colonized states to use a, a phrase by, um, I think it's Anthony Lowenstein, as laboratorial, that we have within the peripheral states a laboratory for the core states to test out their weapons and surveillance and their means of domination. Now, if they're the two relationships between class and colony, why then would decolonial warfare be allegorical? Well, it is because to wage war on the colonial system, to wage war on its material outpost, its military fortifications, is allegorically a kind of class war. To hit that local target is to wage war against capital as a whole, is to launch one's offensive against the entire internationalized system of imperial capital. That's brilliant, Mark. And I really like the emphasis in your response there on what Priyam Vadagopal would recall the, the reverse tutelage that exists within uh, Pan-African revolt and black radicalism. And it's really that dimension in my fourth question that I want to explore in a little bit more detail now. Um, of course, throughout your book, <clears throat> one of the key fellow travellers is CLR James. He features as an authority throughout your book. In James's own work, particularly in Nkrumah and the Ghana Revolution from 1977, C.L.R. James argued, and I quote him, that every revolution must attempt what by all logic and reason previous experience is impossible. Like anything creative, it extends the boundaries of the known. The request is unreasonable and even madness, but that is what revolution is, reasonable madness, end quote. So one of the facets of James's life that I think is particularly arresting is his involvement then in building Pan-Africanism. This included, obviously, his time in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania from 1969 to 1974, where he would overlap, as you've anticipated, with Walter Rodney, but also with other radical geographers as well. Milton Santos was there from 1974 to 1976. And indeed, uh, the British geographer David Slater was also there at exactly the same time, overlapping between 1972 and 1975. So to coin a phrase from a book by George Roberts, there is something special here, I think, in revolutionary state-making in Dar es Salaam in this period especially after the Arusha Declaration in 1967. 
So what do you think is living and what do you think is perhaps dead in such Pan-African revolt and that history of black radicalism? <laughs> Thank you. There's, there's a whole bunch going on in that question. So when we think about Pan-Africanism, it, it's a contentious and debated term. Um, I, I, I think in, in essence, what we are thinking about is African, particularly African national liberation and decolonial revolt waged as a kind of internationalism un, unto itself. So where we see Pan-Africanism playing out most profoundly, I think, is um, as a kind of Marxist anti-imperialism, a Marxist anti-imperialism. And I think in this, in this particular valence, it's not something we see alive and flourishing as much as much as we would possibly like to in, in terms of world transformation today but pan-africanism is not just or not not even primarily just about states in revolt it's not just about national liberation it is also quite clearly about the african diaspora which is spread all across the globe and concentrated in various places if if Pan-Africanism and Black radicalism is alive and well today, or at least excitingly today, it is very much so in the diaspora movement. Here I, I think about, and I, I write a bit about this, especially in one of the book's final substantive chapters, it is alive in a kind of thinking and action by radicals who are racialized migrants, but also the descendants of, of enslaved persons. It's a kind of thinking and action that seems to recognize that property or dispossession is synonymous with race, is synonymous with migration status. Now, this is kind of thinking, a kind of action, this black radicalism, which combines a militant anti-racism with revolt against the police. And it recognizes that all of this is going to be a revolt against capital. So we often get today these, um, in my eyes, fairly reductionist de debates about, about whether whether someone's thinking is, 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 is too much about class or too much about race. This kind of black radicalism seems to recognize that the two are mutually intertwined, that they are inextricable, and so recognizes a kinship between anti-racist and class struggle, anti-racist and class war. And that's what we see in a tradition that took off, especially in the United States, beginning perhaps with the, the, the Black Panthers, a militant and militarized group that, that formed in, in Oakland, and which carries on today in certain kinds of, not all kind of, but certain valences of, say, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, a, a great movement that has mobilized against police, against the prison industrial complex, insofar as parts of that movement seem to recognize that they are also moving against police and the prison industrial complex as forces that are guardians of the property system and so of capital and so of class as a whole. That's great, Mark. And uh, many thanks for that really wide um, vista that you've given us. 
As with any book, though, you can't cover all aspects of literature and all aspects, perhaps, uh, of revolution. So my final question for today is perhaps um, the element that you couldn't include, uh, the element that you couldn't strive to, to bring into the focus. Readers will very much enjoy the ride on which you take them uh, on this revolutionary locomotive. Um, as with any journey, there are some familiar stops, but also many unexpected pleasant surprises. Equally, there might be the occasional revolutionary or literary trip that you could not make and that readers were anticipating. Uh, this is so with any book. Um, but what did you then perhaps not manage to include that you would have liked to have addressed? Um, where would you like to go next in terms of the political and literary space of class war? Uh, so much that wasn't included in so many places to go. Hey, I think in terms of writing substantial chapters and covering areas and struggles, there are a couple that I would have liked to include but didn't just primarily for the, the, the sake of scope. It is a, a book that covers around over two centuries and leaps all across the globe. So there, there are omissions. Um, those that I, I feel, feel the most, I would have liked to and would like to, to think within this context about class war as particular to the Middle East and particular to the Indian subcontinent. And I'm especially interested in these areas because of the interlock between class, but also with religious belief and also different variations of the caste system. I, I, I think there are important lessons to be learned from these. I also would have liked to have written more, more, more fully, more forcefully about specifically indigenous struggles. Um, the indigeneity is something that appears here and there in different different versions through, throughout the book, but it's especially interesting and powerful as a force in the present, especially where it is linking up to the climate movement or revolt against the, 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 the forces causing the conflagration of our globe. Um, in terms of where I, I, I would like to go next with this kind of thinking, um, Adam, you used the, the, the a locomotive metaphor, so I, I figure I should invoke Lenin here. Um, I I, I'm deeply interested in how the idea of class war exists, not just as a literary form, so a form that is beholden to the symbolic stuff of language, to words spoken or, or on the page, but also how class war appears across visual media. Now, if we think back to the, 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 the early days after the Russian Revolution, one, one, of, one of the phrases that from, from Lenin that often gets quoted, often by often by film historians, is that Lenin said that of all the arts, cinema is the most important for us, the, the revolutionary socialists. The reason why cinema was so important is that as a medium that spoke via images that had been sequenced together as opposed to words, it could sidestep illiteracy and could speak to Russia, Russia's gigantic, enormous, mostly illiterate peasant population at the time. Now, I wonder if we can take that lesson and think about that today, that if we live in an age in which class war is raging and is going to rage further, we also live in an age that is 
mediated and international. That our world is, to, to use that old McClure-like phrase, very much a global village. All the parts are linked. They are all mediated together. But those mediations are often going to be visual as opposed to linguistic. Visual media can cut across language boundaries. So in that sense, I'm interested in the iconography of class war, the icons, the images, the the vistas that class war takes. And some of these will be quite familiar. The burning police car, the riot moving down a street, the occupation of a square. I would be very, very interested in tracking how class war effloresces now and into the future, but doing so not so much via language, not so much via the phrase class war that is right now massively ubiquitous, especially in the the modulated formulation of no war but class war, but also how it occupies the visual regime. That's wonderful, Mark. I think I think you've taken us on a wonderful journey there from the visceral aspects to the visual aspects of the spaces of class war. Thank you very much. Thank you.